Hey everybody, good morning to you. Why don't you open your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Ephesians. We are plugging through this study of the book of Ephesians, and we find ourselves in chapter 6. So Ephesians chapter 6, and if you're using a Bible app and you're new with us, uh, we use the English Standard Version. That'll help you follow along, but there's also hard copies uh, on the rows next to you, so if you need a Bible, just ask a neighbor for it. We'd love to make sure you have that. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we find ourselves today, and I will read the passage and then pray for us. And part of my prayers uh, will be um, for a couple of things. One is we have, announcement-wise, we have on Tuesdays, um, There will be several who will be reaching out to the teenage girls in our community and in the church um, who want to kind of grow in art or cooking classes and those kind of things. It'll be uh, every Tuesday through July into the first part of August, and so uh, we'll be leading that. Heather is the one who's kind of spearheading that with Esther Gaines, and so if you're interested in that, uh, please let us know if you want to be a part or to help. Also, the guys then on Thursday will be doing some basketball stuff, some three-on-three in the, in the back back here. That's the way. Um, and uh, Zach Engel is leading that. And so if there's uh, anything that you want to either join and be a part or you want to help, please uh, let us know. Also, Pastor Travis is not here this weekend. He is gone to Moldova, and he is... Uh, just on a vision trip, just kind of seeking to figure out if we might be able to be a part of some global mercy type work. And he has gone with another sister church that we love so dearly, Providence Baptist Church. And so we might be partnering in some way, shape or form in the future uh, with them. So I want to be in prayer for uh, Pastor Travis as he is gone for the next 10 days. Uh, So uh, I want to uh, read a passage of scripture. Oh, and also uh, we have with us today Paul and Amy Sarazen. I'm so glad you're here. And the kids, I'm so glad you're here too. Um, Paul is actually going to be preaching for us next week. And so that's why I wanted to mention that. I will not be here to appropriately hug him and um, greet him next week. So I'm going to do it this week. And uh, he'll be continuing in our series in the book of Ephesians. He'll be preaching on Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 through 9. So just wanted to let you guys know that. So enough preamble, let's dive in. Um, Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 to 4 is all that we're looking at today. I'll read it and then I'll pray. The word of God says this, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you care about our hearts and you care about our homes. I thank you that you care about our spiritual and physical needs. I thank you that you are with us. And that is enough. I thank you that your love never fails. Your presence is powerfully sufficient. You are working for us. You will go before us. 
And all these gospel truths are ours as we trust that we are unable to save ourselves and you are our glorious Savior. So please come, Father. I ask in this moment that you would change our hearts. You would make us open to receive what we need to receive. I pray that you would make us deeper in love with you. That you would be the hero of today and of our lives. That you and your fame would be the trajectory that we spend our lives for. Father, I ask that you would wean us from the world and that you would fill us with a desire for you above everything else. So, Father, now in this moment, teach us, not just our brains, but our hearts. Change us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Spirit-filled family is what we're looking at today. Spirit-filled family. Here's one thing I know. Parenting is hard. Do I get an amen? Thank you very much. Yeah, this is a a give-and-take kind of conversation here. Home life is hard. Some of you children might want to say amen, right? Yeah, okay, you didn't, but that's okay. Family is hard, okay? If that's not a great uplifting way to begin a message, I don't know what is. It's difficult. Well, I've been reading a book by Paul Tripp called Parenting, 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family. And just a few pages in, and I was, you know, sufficiently reminded of my inadequacy and of my inability to do this well. So I do not stand here as one who has arrived, but as one who's been charged to give the Word of God to the people of God. So I will frailly and inadequately do so. But in that book, uh, he lists several scenarios that I want to give to you this morning. Several scenarios that I've found helpful as we begin to process home life, specifically parenting. You're frustrated. Because for some reason, on this particular Tuesday, your two-year-old daughter has decided she will not, under any circumstance, pressure, or threat, eat her peas. You're not asking her to eat poison. They're peas. Silly little round green vegetable orbs. What in the world is in her mind right now? And why do these little tasks have to be so hard? Next story. You can't believe it. Another note from his teacher. This is the fifth note in three weeks, and he's only in kindergarten. For some reason, he will not stop talking in class during the moments when he's not supposed to be talking. He talks when the teacher talks. He talks when other students are trying to talk. He talks with his mouth full during lunchtime. He talks his way through his nap time. He talks when you're trying to talk to him about not talking too much. You thought you finally figured it out by sending him to school and that that would simplify your life. It didn't quite work out that way. Next scenario. It's been one of those days. You're convinced it's a sibling conspiracy against you as a parent. It feels as if your children have plotted together to make this day particularly difficult. It feels as if it's you against the legion of rebellious ones. You've lost your patience too many times. You've said and done embarrassing things. You've raised your voice and made ominous threats, but nothing has seemed to help. You've lost control of your own house, and silently, with a bit of guilt, you wish for the simple days of before. Another story. You've just had one of the best conversations you've ever had as a parent. It's hard to imagine that 11-year-old could be so deep, so philosophical. You were caught off guard. You had no idea that in this passing moment, 
time would stop and profound considerations would be on the table. You didn't feel very prepared. You stumbled over your words. You hoped what you said was helpful, understandable, and wise. You hoped the way you said things would open up more conversations. You just wish an alarm would have gone off telling you that things were about to get very serious. It doesn't always work that way. Next story. She seems embarrassed by you. It really does hurt. She used to run into your arms for comfort and love. She loved to hold your hand as she skipped her way through the mall. She would dress up in her clothes and pretend to be you. She'd get on a stool in the kitchen and quote-unquote help you cook dinner. She would run to you with that great big smile when she won the ribbon at gymnastics. Now, she wants you to drop her off at the mall and ask you please not to come in. She doesn't really want you to pick her up from school and when you do, she wants you to park down the street. She doesn't bring many friends home and when she does, they hide in her room out of sight and separate from you. You want her to run up to you and bury her head in your chest and say, I love you, Mommy, like she used to, but you don't think she will. Another story. You've taken them to a movie. It's the one thing you all enjoy doing as a family. It was billed as a fun family comedy, but it's been filled with all kinds of inappropriate innuendos from beginning to end. You didn't catch the last part of the movie because your mind had wandered away thinking of what you should say how you should handle what your children were just exposed to, how much did they understand. If you talk to them, will you you be opening up a can of worms? Is it time to have a very frank talk about some certain difficult subjects? Are you ready? Are they ready? How will you do it? When will you do it? You wish you had a script to follow for this. Last one. As you carry the final bit of his stuff up to his dorm room, you tell yourself that he's a good kid. But you really wonder if he's ready. You look at him and you don't see a university student. You see a leaky-nosed, scuffed-kneed six-year-old begging to spend the night with a friend. He did okay in high school. No sex, drugs, or jail time. He was determined to go away to college somewhere new, somewhere different from home. You worry about his dorm, that his dorm has double the students that were in his high school. The girls walking around the hallways of his co-ed dorm make you uncomfortable. You want to grab him, throw him and his pile of stuff into the car, and get out of there as fast as you can before you lose him completely. He tells you not to worry, that he will be okay, but it doesn't help. You pray with him before you leave, but you're still a wreck. You ask him to call later, but you just don't think he will. If anyone thinks they are sufficient for these things, they are gravely mistaken. Who is sufficient to be a parent? Literally, you're probably clinically insane or incredibly arrogant if you think you can handle this on your own. Those stories pave the way for only one solution. It's grace. You need the grace of God in a massive way in order to be a parent, in order to be a child, in order to have a spirit-filled family. We need grace. And Paul tells us here as he is addressing this idea of a spirit-filled family, he comes to us and he lays out four major ideas that I want to lay out for us today. That as parents and as children... We need spirit-powered living. That's number one. Two, we need spirit-empowered perspective. That's number two. 
Three, we need spirit-filled obedience. And four, we need spirit-filled parenting. So as I've been praying, I've been praying that God would just comfort us and bless us with his presence, would give us some clarity. But let's dive in. Because if you're like me, when I read those scenarios, I was filled with both laughter and then feeling terror and fear. There's just sense of, oh no, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> well, something that God's grace is sufficient for. So let's look at it. Spirit-empowered living. Now, this passage begins addressing children and then addresses parents. You have here three verses that address the children and one verse that addresses the fathers, but specifically can be applied to the, the parents in the home. So, I need you to walk with me down this journey because here's what I realized. Is it really true that all the lessons children need can be summarized in three verses? Are we serious? And all the instruction I need as a parent can be summarized in one verse? Is that all he's going to give me? I, I mean, I went back. 35 words. That's not even like a full tweet. 35 words to guide children. Three verses. And then one verse on parenting. 16 words. That's all we get. Is that really going to be sufficient to handle this task? It feels like a gross injustice, like he missed something, or did he not? Because this is lesson number one. Before it's about what we do as children or parents, it's primarily about who we are. The whole book is a parenting manual. Parents and children are meant to be soaking themselves in this letter. A letter that from beginning to end is a story of grace. A story of all the help that God promises that you and I are unworthy to have. And yet by sheer sovereign mercy, as recipients, he pours out day by day, moment by moment, his incredible love. Isn't that what chapter 1 tells us? Chapter 1 makes it really clear. Salvation is of God. And you should stand in awe of God's incredible love that before the foundation of the world, He said, you're mine and I love you. And the story goes on to say, by simple faith, He sent His own Son so that by faith in Him, we might have a story of rescue and redemption. We might be adopted into a family made new. And God will always be fighting for us and always be with us. Chapter 1 is a story of grace. Chapter 2 slams us right into the fact that we are undeserving of grace, dead in trespasses and sins. And chapter 2 goes on, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. From dead to life by sheer grace alone. Our story is a story of grace. And then you run into chapter 3. And in chapter 3, the only way the church finds this great sense of peace and unity is that Jesus Christ himself is our peace. 
He can take warring factions and different ethnicities and bring them together under one family by grace alone. He tells us this is what is possible because Jesus is our peace. And then he ends chapter 3 with saying, I just want you to stare at my love. I want you to know the depth and the height and the breadth and the width of my love and to live in that love. Day after day after day. And that's what chapters 4 and 5 and 6 are. How do you live in the grace and the love of Christ? How do you live there and sit there? And so, of course, he only needs a few verses to address parenting specifically because it's more about having your heart shaped by his love. It's about children living for Christ and prizing Christ above everything. It's about a community of people who have totally been reoriented to say what we said last week, I consider you better than myself. Only the Spirit of God can make that happen. I consider you brother and sister. I consider you mom and dad. I consider you spouse. I consider you church better than me. That only happens by grace. By the Spirit of God. And that's why, that's why this all begins with Spirit-empowered living. Chapter 5, verse 18, is where this passage flows out of. It's like the the gun that shoots out, chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. What is that powder keg that makes the explosion happen? What is that? It is live wisely by... Understanding the will of the Lord and being filled with the Spirit of God. He's just spent chapters 4 and 5 helping us understand the will of the Lord. And now he goes on to say, now be filled with the Spirit. And what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? He tells us. You speak to one another encouraging words in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then you sing those making melody in your heart to the Lord. And then you refuse complaining and discontentment. And the Lord fills you up with thanksgiving. And then it says, and you're submissive to one another. You're sacrificial in your love for one another. You're considering one another better than yourself. And then he lays out specific scenarios of what that unique spirit-filled life looks like in marriage, which is what we dealt with last week, and now what the spirit-empowered life looks like in the home between parent and children. And so, friends, he begins by saying, yes, these verses are okay because the whole book is about what it means to live this spirit-empowered life. Now, the second idea is this. We not only need to know that God dwells within us by his spirit so we can have spirit-empowered living, but we need a spirit-empowered perspective. The spirit of God needs to empower us to think and to see life differently. What are we aiming at? What are our goals? Both children and parents need to understand that our lives communicate. They communicate what we love. Everybody can, if you look at your life over the past week, you can see what you love and what you treasure. Think about it. What you've spent time doing, what Your money has gone towards. These are the things that you love and you treasure. That doesn't mean that they're bad. It just exposes what you're going after. And you would want the primary treasure of the human heart to be, I love Christ and I want Him 
to take control of my entire life, every corner I want to be his. C.S. Lewis says, as you enjoy him first, all other secondary loves are enjoyed even fuller. But what are the treasures of our heart? It plays out like a drama. This is what Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 5. He tells us that marriage is like a drama. Marriage is like a drama. It, I said last week it was a picture book of the covenant of friendship love that God has given us. It's what marriage is. It's a, it's a demonstration. It's, it's a drama that unfolds of the love of Jesus for his people and his people's love for him. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 32 that this whole marriage thing is a mystery and it's profound. And I'm saying that there's this spiritual thing happening when a husband and wife are together that is communicating a drama to the church and to the world. It's communicating two things. Here's a quote from one commentator I was reading as Paul here quotes Genesis 2.4. This quote says this, Genesis 2-4 is used in a two-pronged way. What's this two-pronged drama that's being given to us? Hansen, the commentator, writes this, The church is, on the one hand, an independent person, the objects of Christ's love. So it communicates the love of Jesus. That's what marriage communicates, the love of Jesus. But what's the second prong? On the other hand, so closely connected with him, the head and the Savior, that together they constitute a unity. What is the other thing that marriage communicates? It, com it communicates union, unity. My wife's victory is my victory. My body, her body. There's this union that's happening. It's a mysterious union. And as Christ is the head of the church, there's this mysterious union. We are in Him. His victory is our victory. When you hurt, I hurt. There's this mysterious union that we have. And marriage is meant to display that mysterious love and union to the world. Now, our homes also display a drama. The way children reflect their treasure and how they obey, and parents, their treasure and how they parent. We're displaying a drama. It makes me tremble to say the sentence, but it is true. Who's sitting on the front row of the drama of my marriage? My kids, front and center. My kids, right there. They're the front row to the drama of what I communicate about God's love. And how I love my wife. How she loves me. They are on the front row. It is a drama. And that drama says what we love. You know when you sit and eat a meal. There's sometimes you don't even need words. To expose that you're either really loving it. Or really hating it. Right? So if you're sitting there and it's just like. You know. You, you, you do like the shiver and your shoulders kind of crunch up and it's like, that food was horrific, you know? Sometimes you're good at hiding it, but you know, you can just tell like, that's not good. And then there are other moments when you're eating and it's just like, mmm, so good, you know? And then somebody tries to talk, no, 
don't talk right now. This is my moment. We're eating. You know, it's just like, I love this. This is great. You can communicate sometimes without even using words what you love and what you don't love. And how we conduct our lives in the home, whether children or parents, it's a drama that displays to the world what we love and what we don't love, who's our treasure and who's not. And so we tell a story. We tell a story in our parenting. And Paul Tripp says this, Parenting is not first about what we want for our children or from our children, but about what God in grace has planned to do through us in our children. He uses this comparison in his book of owner versus ambassador. Owner parenting versus ambassador parenting. And he makes a very clear distinction at the beginning. Your children are not first yours. They're God's. Owner parents flip that around. And they believe that because they are owners of their children, then their identity, what they aim for, what they work for, their reputation, all of those are at stake in that relationship. Ambassador parenting does what an ambassador does. What's an ambassador do? Takes the message from an authority and communicates it to someone else, but they do not have the liberty to change that message. Their sole job is to clearly communicate and display the message of the higher authority to someone else. The ambassador to China must communicate clearly the policies of the U.S. to this country. It's not their opinion. It's not their... It's clearly communicating something that's been handed down. We are ambassador parents. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is the one that we are to display. We're to be a part of show and tell type of parenting. What's show and tell like? If you've ever been a part of show and tell, what happens at show and tell? They bring something that they love to show to others. It could be their favorite pet. It could be a card trick. It could be a family member. It could be a family recipe, and hopefully there would be food attached with it. There's comics or costumes or their best friend. They're bringing these things to show and tell because they want to communicate what they love. Our parenting is show and tell parenting. By our words and by our actions, we are just communicating what our king has already said. What God has already said is the way to health and the way to life and the way to joy. That's our role. Now, Paul Tripp lays out kind of four areas where we flip these around and pervert those. And I just wanted to walk through them briefly so that we might be able to try to understand a little bit of what this spirit-empowered perspective is. Because we need a new perspective, one that is shaped by the book of Ephesians. These four things, identity, work, success, and reputation. Identity says, who am I? Work, what is my job? Success, what is success in parenting? And reputation, how do I look in my parenting? Owner, let's look at identity first. The owner type of parenting places their identity in their children. Their children's 
performance or words or success bears an evidence of their value or the parent's significance, the parent's worth. And what happens is children tend tend to be massively overburdened when parents make them their worth and significance. Paul Tripp says this, Parents who make children their identity, they take the children's failures personally as if they were done against them intentionally and respond to their children with personal hurt and anger. But, end quote. But the ambassador type parent says, I'm secure in Christ's love for me. I know that I am valuable not because of how my child turns out, but because of what my Savior says over me. I am loved, I am precious, I am His, He will not leave me, and that allows me to communicate both the good and the bad, right? Not just what the kids love, but what the kids need. I'm an ambassador, I'm secure, and I'm freed from having my family and their outcomes determine my significance and my worth. I'm set free from that. The second thing is work. What is my job? And this is something that I have a lot of trouble with because owner parenting believes that you can change, that the job is for you to change your child and that you can change them. And I'm tempted to think that, right? If not in my brain, with my actions. If I just talk more, it'll be solved. If I just say it right, if my tone just changes a little bit, then this will fix it. It's this work. What is my job? It is to change my, parents, my kids. And so therefore, many times we spend money and time and resources to try to form our child into who we want them to be. Paul Tripp says that he has done so much counseling with children who were breaking under the burden of constant pressure to live up to the parents' vision for their lives. A vision that had very little to do with overall these foundations of Ephesians, but had to do with being the best in education, being the best in the sports, being the best musically, or making up for something that they did not do or did not have as a parent, trying to make that up in their children. Children were never meant to bear that pressure, and you were not meant to bear the burden of trying to change your children. Instead, the ambassador parenting says only God can change them. I think it would be a helpful thing for all parents in the room to say this phrase, I can't change my child. Okay, why don't we say that together? I can't change my child. Whether you believe it or not, it's true. God is the changer. I cannot change my child or my children. God must do that. And this is just a good lesson whether you have children or not. In marriage, your goal is not to change your spouse. Your goal is to show them and to demonstrate to them the love of Jesus and allow God to do the changing work. Your roommate, those that are your dear friends, you can influence, you can encourage. 
you cannot change. That is the work of Jesus. Ambassador parent is secure in Christ. Going after Christ and His love. That is what is front and center. When that happens, prayer increases as a parent because you realize you have no power to change. What about success? What is success? The answer to that question determines what you spend so much time on as a parent. What is success? If success is to be the best educated, to get in the best school, is to perform better or higher at a sports level or at a music level, then you will focus all of your attention and energy there. Now, are those things bad? No way, no how. Education is great. Music is wonderful. Performing arts are great. I love sports. It teaches you discipline and it teaches you teamwork for many of the sports. I love these kind of things. They're great. They are not ultimate. And we must be very clear with ourselves and with our kids what success is. It's going after Jesus. You cannot control even the spiritual outcome of your kids. What you can control is your surrender. Give it to the Lord. Give them Jesus over and over. Tell them this is the goal of parenting. Ambassador parents, point to Christ and put all of those other wonderful things under the umbrella of Jesus is most valuable. Finally, reputation. How do I look? The owner parent feels that their reputation is at stake in how their kids perform. The way their kids perform reflects on them directly. They take it personally. They feel really down when kids perform high. They feel really high when kids perform well. Different than I rejoice that my child did well. It has more to do with I feel a sense of significance or worth or value or an up mood or a down mood built upon how well they do. My reputation is at stake. I can't tell you how many times somebody has come to me and said, did you know your kid said this? And the temptation is just like, oh, that's not what they should have said. Or that's not, you know, that doesn't reflect how I parent. And you just got to swallow it, you know. You can't fix that. Sometimes you think you can if you just have one. But then you start adding kids and then the mouths just start going. You know, it's just like, okay, you can't control this beast. You can't make it happen. It's just, it's just going. And you've got to be okay to get egg on your face because here's a principle. You're not a perfect parent. You're not. You're going to do things wrong. And they might say, and my dad yelled at me or, you know, and, or this happened and this happened. Yes, those things happen. The ambassador parent. Is that a place where they say, my security is in what Jesus says about me. And where those things are exposed, it helps others to speak into my life. And it helps me to grow in apologizing to my family. I say this over and over again. Your kids will care more that you are humble than that you are perfect. And so this idea is an opportunity. An opportunity for you to love them. Now, if you're like me, I hear these. And I feel, in some senses, like a failure at every one of them. And if I'm in your shoes, it would be hard to even listen because I'm so much rehearsing right now all the things that I probably did bad today or at least this weekend. Let alone a sense of fear that maybe I've set a trajectory for my children that's irrecoverable. And this is where you need Ephesians 1-5. to You need grace. 
You need to know our God specializes in taking messes and redeeming them. This is where you need to rehearse that even in the midst of all of your mistakes, God has been right there with you. Dear friends, the fact that you love Jesus, I know many of your stories, and for many of you, it is not owing to the ingeniousness of your parents. It is owing to sheer grace. Parents many times take too much responsibility for the successes and for the failures. We need to take our fears, our anxieties, our regret, our failures, and we lay them before the Lord. And here's a verse that has been so much of an encouragement to me from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 31, it says this, Be strong and courageous, but I feel weak and trembly. No, he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Or tremble at them. There he was speaking about enemies who are going to attack. You might be, don't tremble at your kids. Don't tremble at whatever is before you. Don't be afraid. Don't tremble. Here's why. The Lord your God is the one who goes before you. And he is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. That's your hope. That's your hope. I have no idea why God would choose to ordain it to use me to parent my children. Why not go and end around me and go straight to them? He's much better at this than I am. Instead, he makes it his plan that broken people are the parents. You are the best parent for your child because you're the one that is the parent of the child. Trust the Lord. Don't trust in you. Trust the Lord. Lean into him. Allow him to give you everything that you need. Now, I found this interesting. I was reading a book, um, and the book's title is called How Children Succeed. It is uh, not a Christian book. Um, it's by a man named Paul Tuff, I think is how you pronounce his last name. And a revolutionary study has just happened. And yes, I am sarcastic as I say that. Back in the 1950s and 60s, revolutionary news came to the scene that getting information into your children in the ages between zero and three created mental categories, created kind of an educational foundation that set trajectories for years to come. And so the philosophy or the theory is that in low-income communities, you might have heard the word theory where there are so many million more words in families who have been successful or upper income, both, families in, uh, both parents in the home versus those who are in single-family, low-income neighborhoods, millions of more words used. And so what it is is that there's just not enough cognitive stimuli that's happening. And so the trajectory of these individuals' lives are going south. And so we need to educate and educate and educate. This is where baby Einstein came from. You know baby Einstein, right? Baby Einstein comes from, okay, you need to get all of these learning things to happen in your kids between zero to three. And it created a lot of anxious parents. And it also, as this author said, it created a gladiatorial type preschool ambition, right? You got to get your kids into the best school, the wait list, push and shove, whatever you got to do, get them in. 
Because you just got to get it in their brains. You got to stimuli. You got to get enough stimuli in the brain for them to make it. Now, here's the deal. Revolutionary study. Paul Tuff said he went to a school as a journalist. And as he sat there, he saw these kids playing together. And they weren't being instructed to do so. They were just enjoying this. They were, he was like, what in the world is happening? So he interviews the teacher. This teacher and has a revolutionary approach to this school. And it is that they would work on shaping the character of these kids more than they would influence their thinking. Now, the thinking is helpful. And stimuli, you know, stimuli in the brain is good. But they, they, they spent time focusing in on their character. Starting something and allowing them to finish it. Creating make-believe worlds that they didn't allow to stop. They had to, they had to play at something for like 30 minutes to try to keep things from being short-circuited in our ADD world. They taught them to respect an authority. To listen to instruction and to do what they were told. And the revolutionary study is that those kids whose character was developed had more long-term success than those who had simply the mental stimuli. Wow! As if the Bible is irrelevant. As if it hasn't been saying for thousands of years the heart is what is most important. Not that the brain isn't important. Of course it is. Don't make things polar. It's a sense of we have to be shaped. We have to be shaped. And so these are the perspectives that accord with the scriptures that now allow us to dive into just these four quick verses. <laughs> You're like, good night. He didn't even get to the passage yet. Okay, here we roll. Number three, spirit-filled obedience. Look at what it says. Children, you need spirit-filled, empowered living. You need a new perspective. And now, he says, you need a spirit-filled obedience. You need to learn to obey. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, here's the deal. This letter was read to the church just like I read it to you just now. So you can imagine he's reading through it and he says, Children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So he's probably not referring to infants here. Probably those who have the cognitive ability to kind of, you know, follow through with what they're being told. But it's also children who are underneath their parents, because the instruction to the parents in verse 4 is to build them up or to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So they're still in the home being shaped. These are the children being addressed here. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Now children, you're like, many times you don't know what's right and wrong and you, you really struggle to know. This right here is really clear. What is proper and right and fitting and good for you is to obey your parents. And then it says, in the Lord. Now, children, I know it's hard for you. If you're a child, raise your hand. Still in the home, under your parents' authority, raise your hand. Okay, good. Yes, that's great. Okay. So this applies to you. Being a child is hard because sometimes your parents say crazy things, don't they? Do I get an amen? That's, thank you. That's what I needed. That's right. 
Your, your parents sometimes say crazy things. I'm one of those crazy parents that said crazy things. I've intentionally tried to allow others to give me scenarios so that I would not use my kids as illustrations in this. I think that's a problem and so for me, and so I'm not going to do that. But here, one of my children, I said something to them that was just totally not able to be followed. But I was so frustrated at the table, and we were eating, and it was just like, what is going on? And I, this phrase comes out of my mouth. And I just want you to figure out how you're supposed to follow this for the rest of your life. The phrase was, don't eat food. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, really? Like, like, how am I supposed to do this? So, like, I mean, I'm supposed to clean, you know, I'm supposed to eat the food. I, I, don't know, I just don't know what to do. Like, is this for, like, for the rest of my life kind of command? I'm not going to live long? Like, yeah. Sometimes your parents... They just don't say the best things. And so you're like, it's hard being a kid because sometimes <laughs> my parents do some crazy stuff. And then on top of that, you're battling with a lot. You're battling with acceptance. You're battling with social media. You're battling with, as you get older, the pressure seems to mount up and it gets heavier. And children, you're tempted to compare yourself to others. Why do they have that? And I don't. And those things get really hard. And then your parents tell you things that you want to do, but they say it's just not best. And yet your friend got to do that, or your sibling got to do that, and you don't get to do that. And you're tempted to say, that's not fair. It's hard. It's hard being a child at times. But the Bible says that the comfort you can take is that when you obey your mom and dad, you are overall obeying the Lord. Like the God of the universe who created you is right there with you, and when you obey them, even in their craziness, you're saying with your life, I love God, and He's important to me. You get the privilege to show that movie to your siblings, to your parents, because your obedience is in the Lord. It's to what the Lord commands. So obviously, if your parents say something that's completely against God's commands, that's not what it's calling for here, but you obey your parents. It's right. It's right in the Lord. And then it goes on. It gives you more kids than it gives the parents here in this passage. Honor your father and mother. You know what honoring means? Probably not, so I'll help you. It means respect. It means kids should not be demanding. They should not boss the parents around. But they should seek to love them and acknowledge their authority. There's been many times in our home when we say, you don't talk to your mom and dad that way. Why? Because we're on an ego trip? No. Because the way they learn to talk to us will be the way they learn to talk to other authorities in their life and ultimately the way they view God who is their ultimate authority. There has to be a submissive heart that learns that I'm going to trust another even when I can't figure it out. That's what we get to shape. And I tell you, the opposite is kind of shaped in these kids' lives. Like if you... Just go to the Disney Channel at some point, right? You watch it, and if you watch it, there are the regular foolish ones and the regular heroes. Who are the foolish ones? 
The parents are. And the heroes are the kids. The kids are the ones who know what should happen, and the parents are the ones that are always blowing it. Now, I'm not saying don't watch the Disney Channel. My kids watch that, but process it with them. Because our world is filled with a parent-centered, or with a child-centered, child-led society. And authority is scoffed at, and it is crushing homes. This right here establishes what must be central in the home, and that is parents should be honored and respected. They are not to be bossed around or sassed back to or torn down. They are to be built up. And when it comes to honoring parents, that happens even for grown-up children. Honor your parents. Respect them. You don't have to agree with everything that they say, and you probably won't. But honor them. Want good for them. Don't tear them down. Show them and give them Jesus. The Bible says, children, that as you honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise. In the Ten Commandments, the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. This was a promise of a longer life or a healthier life or at least a happier life in the here and now by following God's commands. And that is a general rule of the Scriptures that there is as you follow Christ's way, it's better than not following Christ's way. It doesn't mean you won't die early. It doesn't mean that you'll have everything that you ever dreamed. It'll mean as a general rule, there is a joy, a sustaining joy that comes by doing what God says. This is the first command with a promise. Children, obey your parents. Honor your parents. And we need spirit-filled obedience. And now children are like, can you please move on? This is getting uncomfortable. So we move on to the parents. Spirit-filled parents. And the parents were like, well, I was really okay with where you were. I don't want you to go here. Well, I'm just following Paul here, and he says this. Fathers, and he highlights fathers because fathers are, as we saw in the marriage, are meant to take the sacrificial, servant-hearted leadership of the home. But it doesn't mean that this doesn't apply to the moms. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You have a a negation, and then you have a what to do. Avoid this, do this. Now, as we think about parenting in general, those of you who are single or those of you who do not have kids, you have been massively patient to this point because you're like, this has not been for me. <laughs> I appreciate it. I know you got to talk about what's in the Bible, but I feel massively left out. Here's something that I want to encourage you with. Some of you might not even like children and you feel like that they're an inconvenience. Others of you want children and you can't have children and you feel totally left out of this discussion. I want to encourage you that God wants you around children regularly, whether you have them or not. And here's why. You learn lessons about your relationship with God when you are around kids. As Jesus says, little children come to me, he says, for such of these is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? It means these dependent little ones are showing you what it takes to get into heaven. It's childlike dependence. It's simple, childlike faith. It's the humility to say, I don't know how to do this. Can you help me? 
Be around children enough, you'll also know your sin, (laughs) but you'll also know dependence. You'll know the beauty of just basic, small faith. You'll learn the beauty of what it looks like to say, I don't know. I don't know. Can you help me? I need you. This is what our relationship with Jesus is. And being around children is meant to be a great teaching tool to all of us to be more like Jesus. But for you who are parents, as I said before, why does God choose to use me? Why doesn't he just go around me? Because I don't feel very good at this thing. Sometimes I feel okay at it, and other times I feel horrible at it. Why? And as we were doing a Bible time, we do this periodically. After we eat, we'll sit together, and we'll just read a small passage of Scripture. It takes about five minutes, and we'll read it, and we'll discuss it together. And as we were going through that, I was using this ambassador talk in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and just asking what that is and what does it look like for us to show Jesus off to each other. We were having a discussion. My wife spoke up because one of my children had said, why would God choose to make us ambassadors? He doesn't need us, which is theologically true. God does not need us. And my wife gave this illustration. This is why you do it as a family because you need each other. This is so good. And she was like, well, technically... I don't need my little girl to help me cook. I can cook on my own. I can do that. But I invite her in in order to instruct her and because I love her. Why parenting at all? Why does he not just go around us and boom, strike their heart, they're okay, and we keep rolling? Because he wants to instruct us and he wants to be with us. He invites us into the kitchen of parenting and say, I want to do all this mess with you. I love you. And I know you're not great at this. I'm going to instruct you through it. But as you get these instructions, you get closer to me. And you get to be reminded regularly, day by day, moment by moment, that I love you. That's why. So see parenting as an opportunity to experience in a deeper, more profound way the love of God, even in your inadequacies. He invites you in. And so he says to the fathers now, okay, sometimes you're tempted to provoke your children to anger. And I'm asking you not to do that. What might that look like? I found a helpful quote, which I thought summarized the whole thing. It says this, Fathers are urged to avoid attitudes, words, and actions which would provoke their children to anger. Effectively, Paul is ruling out this. Excessively severe discipline, unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging and condemnation, subjecting a child to humiliation, and all forms of gross insensitivity to a child's needs and sensibilities. He goes on to say it is this sense of remembering that these, are, these children are people made in the image of God, needing to see God, not just His justice, but His mercy, His gentleness. Fathers, obviously that applies to mothers as well, but fathers, we must lead out in this. We must be known for gentleness. We must be known for clear instruction, yes, and for consequences for those instructions. But do not provoke your children to anger. If you're like me, I look at this, and there was a few of those that stuck out, and I was just like, 
Uh, I don't need to do that. This is where we run to the cross. We run to a Savior who says, yes, you don't need to do that. Repent of it and now go to your children and say, when I did that, I did not treat you with love and respect and I'm sorry. And I need you to forgive me. Remember, they will care more that you are humble than that you are right. So fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but instead bring them up, raise them up, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, those two words I think could be better translated as this. Discipline is training, to train them. And then the instruction word that's used here is more like admonition, like the discipline angle of things. Those are the kind of the two thrusts of the passage. And that is, we should train and instruct and we should admonish or discipline. Now, real quickly, it is very common in parenting philosophy these days to allow the kids to set their own trajectory. Now, I have to address it because it has become very prominent in parenting philosophy. Namely, it is, I do not want to unduly influence, you, you hear negative words like indoctrinate or those kind of things, I don't want to un unduly influence this child I want them to set their own path and set their own trajectory well if you take that to its nth degree let's just say you have a child that loves to play with hot stove eyes they love to put their hand on hot stove eyes following that to the nth degree you would say let them do it because that's how their heart and their life wants to do it of course we would say no because they would have a seared hand we would do something with it what about the child who says who wants to hit every person they see and loves to play with loaded guns. <laughs> so you're like, okay, I'm just going to let this child do what they want to do because they, need, they don't need my influence on the outside. They need to set their own trajectories. Now we would say no. Almost all parents would say no, don't do that. Why? Because I believe written on the heart of every human being in some way, shape, or form, is the law of God, which says you must be kind to others. You must love other people. Murder is not okay. And so they intervene. Why intervene there and not in other ways? Paul is telling us we must intervene because the Scriptures say if you train up a child in their own way, when they are old, they will not depart from that way. When you allow a child's sinful heart to set the trajectory, when they are old, they will keep running in their sinful heart. Selfishness does not uproot itself. It only gets worse. It must be trained out, instructed. And so Paul says, instruct them. They are always being discipled. They're being discipled by TV. They're being discipled by movies. They're being discipled by friends. They're being discipled by their teachers. They're being discipled all the time. So parents, be the primary discipler. Parents, make your aim and your highest value to point them to Jesus. There's no greater gift than Christ. No greater goal than to help them see Jesus matters in every part of life. No greater thing than the church is not just an event, it's a people. Prayer is not just something before a meal, but communion with the living God. He's the one you go to in the highs and the lows. The book 
of the Bible is not just a book of facts. It's living words that shape you. And Jesus, not just a religious figure that you turn to in trial, but he's the love of your life who loves you moment by moment. This is what we instruct our kids in. We must instruct them, but we also must admonish them. Admonish means you've given a clear instruction. They disobey it. There has to be consequences for breaking those commands. These are, this is how it works. Parents, note to self, it's not a sufficient instruction. If you're looking this way and a kid is several rooms over and you say, hey, you need to clean up your room. And then you go back over and they haven't cleaned up their room and you try to discipline for something that they might not have even heard because you didn't take the time to look at them and to say, did you hear this? Do you get this? Okay, now there'll be consequences if you choose another path. Okay, great, let's do this. Let's roll. And then you go for it. We have to make sure that wrongs are corrected and punished in a consistent, creative way. Here we are encouraged. The admonition of the Lord is necessary. And it must be incorporated, not just with this is right and this is wrong, but there's a Savior who loves you and who will be with you to help you in everything that you do. Now, of course, from little kids... It's more, yes, do this, don't do this. As they get older, it's the shepherding of a heart. But Paul says here, what we need is the instruction and the admonition of the Lord, the training of parents. And parents, your training begins here. Out in my backyard, there sits a flower on my back porch. And after several days, I had not watered that plant. And it looked like I had set it on fire with a blowtorch. It was like, you know, it was not like spontaneous combustion, but like it was all dried up and nothing. And there was this one little part that I saw a little green. And so I started watering it. And as I watered that, all of a sudden, it's now this one little section, (laughs) scorched earth over here, and this one little section over here that's growing. And it just reminded me of left to myself, Really quickly, my soul dries up if I'm not regularly watered by the Word. If I'm not regularly watered by Him, I won't know how to instruct. I won't know how to train. I won't know how to admonish. Or at minimum, I won't do it in a way that reflects Jesus. My show and tell will be off. I'll become an owner parent rather than an ambassador parent. I'll just reorient and disorient this whole thing because my soul will be scorched by dryness when it just needs to drink from the Savior. And so where does this begin for all of us? That we would be spirit-empowered in our living and in our perspective. That'll help us know how to obey and how to parent. Let's pray.